The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So tonight is March 6th and I'm continuing a series of talks on the Four Noble Truths, which is chapter two in the book that I've been following, The Mind in the Way, Buddhist Reflections on Life by Ajahn Sumedho. If you're interested in having this book uh, to follow along with the talks for the next probably six months or so, you can go ahead and get a copy of this book if you'd like, and you can check it out at the end of class if you want to take a closer look at it. And probably um, just in your own listening to talks and reading, you know that the Four Noble Truths is a central uh, sort of practice reflection for us, especially in Theravada Buddhism, this particular lineage of Buddhist teachings. Um, the Four Noble Truths is probably the central framework for this ongoing reflection. It's really um, how we sort of hold our spiritual life. Our spiritual life is defined by how we use our mind to reflect on our experience. And specifically, I mean, there are many things we could be reflecting on. The Buddha is saying, and he said this over and over again in his talks, that to focus the reflection, the contemplation, on the experience of suffering, its cause, its end, and the path or the way that leads to the end. So I'll just read a short section from this chapter. Rajan Sumedho says, In Theravada and Buddhist practice, these Four Noble Truths are all we contemplate. As we meditate and live more mindfully and more carefully, these truths become very clear to us through direct experience. When the Buddha was asked what he believed in or taught, he said, I teach suffering, its origin, cessation, and path. The Brahmins, or the priests at the time, would ask, is there a God? What happens to the enlightened one when he passes away? But all the Buddha would say was, all that arises passes away and is not self. There is suffering that has a beginning and an end, and there's a way out of it. That's all I teach. Brilliant minds, great intellectuals have all kinds of ideas about ultimate reality and utopian philosophies. They have magnificent systems of reason and logic, but they don't know their own bodies and minds. They haven't learned they haven't learned from the conditions they experience all the time. And so the most important part of this reflection that the Buddha uses <coughs> is that the contemplation of the Four Noble Truths always has to do with the here and now, specifically how it is in this mind, this heart, here and now. That the whole world of suffering, its cause, its end, and the path, it's all right here. And it really makes it simple in that way, because otherwise our life could be quite complicated if we feel like the path toward happiness is to somehow have to deal not only with my own mind, but all of you guys and the whole world, you know, that I have to get it all together. And I don't know about you, but I find myself going in this direction a lot, that somehow the path to happiness is to sort of 
fix the world or to fix some circle, however big that circle is. And it's so nice that it's just about contemplating how suffering arises, how it ceases, just to learn how that happens. We don't even have to do something about it. Just understanding leads to the transformation. Another well-known, uh, or another teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who uh, lived in the 1900s in Thailand and trained a number of the Western teachers, including some of you know Santi Karol, who will be here in May. Um, it was his teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, and he talked about the Four Noble Truths in this way. He said, for the First Noble Truth, we see so we can know. So we see, so we can know dukkha, or the experience of stress. Knowing stress allows us to let go of the cause, which is craving or attachment to desire. Letting go allows us to be free, so free of the attachment, free of the clinging. Being free allows us to see more clearly. So what do we see more clearly? When the mind is free, when the heart is free of clinging, free of resistance and greed and fear, what do we see? Now, we know what we see when the mind isn't free, right? When the mind is filled with fear or when the mind is filled with greed, we know what we see. What came to mind is that cliche, you know, if, if you're a hammer, all you see are nails. And uh, I remember Ajahn Amaro, another Buddhist monk, saying that uh, <clears throat> as an ordinary human being or an ordinary animal, we simply see things in terms of can we eat it, will it eat me or harm me, or can I mate with it? And everything else we don't see. We just see those three things. Can I eat it? Will it get harm me? Can I mate with it? And so what we're doing is we're changing. The path is really about changing how we see. And so the way we change how we see is by freeing the heart of the obscurations of whatever it is that's confusing the mind. And so that's the reason we emphasize seeing the experience of suffering, knowing its cause, abandoning its cause, so then we have a mind in that moment that isn't being confused by greed and fear. And so then the mind sees clearly. So what does it see clearly? Well, the way that it's often talked about in Theravada Buddhism is that all that arises ceases. Everything that comes into being passes away and is a conditional phenomenon. Sometimes we hear, like uh, Ajahn Sumedho said, and it's not self. But what that really means is that it's a natural, conditional phenomenon. It's not saying it's not something. It is something. It's just not a permanent something. It's a natural, conditional something, something that arises due to conditions and passes away due to conditions. It's a lawful something, like weather. So uh, the last couple of weeks I've been talking about the third noble truth and then last week I began to talk about the fourth noble truth. So in that moment of cessation when the heart is free or relatively free of agitation, of resistance, of fear, of craving, longing, 
then there's clarity. And if that clarity is realized completely, deeply, then there's a, a view that awakens, the view of the path, like how, oh, this is how to live. This is how to live this life. So it's really the path of not clinging. And, it, and that what gets seen and then gets developed through living our life is, can be described in three parts. So last week I talked about the first part, which usually is summarized as wisdom, which includes right view and right intention or right attitude, sometimes called right intention or um, aspiration, rather. So that's the fir- those first two make up wisdom, right view, right intention. And then the next set of three is sila, right action, right speech, right livelihood. So sila usually uh, is called harmony or living uh, ethical life, or Ajahn Sumedho calls it the science of goodness, knowing how to live a good, harmonious life, a life of non-harming. And we can see, if we develop right view, seeing that everything that arises passes and is conditional, it's impersonal, it's not self, seeing this way, living with this view, it naturally leads to a particular intention to come up in the mind. The mind, that it that view undermines any tendency towards greediness or aversion. So there's this letting go or this natural renunciation or disenchantment with all our tendencies to grab a hold of experience or to push experience away. It just falls away. So we call that those particular intentions that are left, non-greed, which is really generosity or renunciation or simplicity or contentment. But it's really non-greed. If there's no greed, what is the heart like when there's no greed? And non-aversion is really kindness and compassion. Because if there's no aversion in the heart, what's left? And non-confusion is clarity. So when the right view that everything that comes goes and is impersonal, it's not self, it's just a conditional unfolding of experience, when we're living, seeing, understanding things in this way, then all of those, what in Buddhism we call the defilements, they all fall away for a while at least. When the view is strong, those defilements fall away. And the only intentions left in the mind, the only thoughts in the mind, revolve around renunciation or generosity, kindness, compassion, or non-aversion, non-delusion or clarity. That's all that's left when that view is strong. And so the neat thing there is with those kinds of thoughts and intentions, how do you suppose we act in the world? And what, what kind of ways do we speak in the world? Well, of course, we're going to speak out of those intentions, those thoughts, those attitudes, the attitude of renunciation or generosity the intention or attitude or mind of kindness and compassion. So the, the emphasis in Buddhist practice in terms of uh, sila, right action, right livelihood, right speech, isn't some, somehow to enforce, like to try hard to be a kind person, try hard not to cheat, not to gossip, try hard not to harm. I'm not saying that's bad, but the most efficient way 
is to cultivate wise view and wise intention that comes out of wise view. Because then, sila, living in harmony, living in a non-harming way, in a good way, it starts to happen more naturally. Now, we still, of course, will make mistakes um, because of the momentum of our habit energy, let's say, or because we lose right view, we lose right intention, and then the old habit comes up, you know, wrong view. Well, what's wrong view? Well, wrong view is just living from a self-centered point of view, which is I want the good stuff and I want to stay away from the bad stuff. And then what kind of intentions come from that view? In Buddhism, we call wrong view. Well, the intention of greediness and the intention of aversion. Like I'm afraid or competitive with the rest of you because you might get what I want. And this uh, greed and aversion confuses our mind. You know, and then we're just not seeing things clearly because our mind is colored by greed and aversion. So we're not really seeing things as they are. And that's called delusion. So there's, you know, I think as I've been talking about the last few weeks, in Buddhist practice, there's a real emphasis on understanding. Now, we still should try to be a moral being and avoid harming, avoid cheating, avoid sexual misconduct, you know, uh, becoming addicted to substances that cloud, color the mind. All of those things are good, but those strategies of restraint without wisdom are very limited, as all of us know, probably in our own lives. I mean, how many times have we tried to make ourselves be good one way or another and only to be overwhelmed by our habit energy and the cultural uh, the force of our sort of cultural habits that we're, of course, exposed to all the time. I was just talking to somebody today and he was just talking about how hard it is. He lives in a situation in a group home and just uh, chaos and the noise and it's just really hard to help his mind settle down. And it's just how it is for him being in that setting. And in a, we're living sort of with our inner environment, like all of the stuff bouncing around in our own mind, and then we're living in our home environment and all the stuff that's bouncing around in our home and then in our city and the world. And whether it's fair or not, this is the environment in which we exist. And we, can't, we don't have that much control. So what we do is we develop, we use our situation, however it is, however uh, inappropriate it might be or not ideal it might be. But in any case, the best thing to do is to use our situation, our circumstances, to develop understanding. The more we develop understanding, the more right intention will arise. Right intention leads to more skillful action. And as our actions become more skillful, more in harmony, less harming, more uh, harmony, then our life begins to settle down. There's a certain happiness, a really beautiful healing happiness that happens as our actions come into alignment with non-harming or basically coming to alignment with right understanding which is the opposite of self-centeredness so 
an understanding that all things come and go and are not self. So this is not a self-centered point of view. And when our actions come into alignment with that view, there's harmony and ease. And there's a kind of confidence that arises too. Just a sense that we can trust ourselves to be in the world. You know, that our intentions are wholesome, that our actions are coming from a good place, our words are coming from a good place. And we live free of remorse to some degree, to whatever degree that we've cultivated this, then there's less remorse and regret. So when we sit down to meditate or to reflect deeply, our mind isn't filled with remorse and regret. It's filled with the opposite of remorse and regret, like gratitude or just uh, just the basic joy, you know, the four Brahma-Viharas of kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. what Ajahn Sumedho says about sila. When there is sila, there is emotional balance, and we feel at peace. Because we don't hurt or steal or lie, there are no regrets, we are not guilt-ridden, and there is a feeling of calm, equanimity, and humility. From this feeling of peace comes the sixth, seventh, and eighth aspects of the path, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Without effort, mindfulness, and concentration, the passive and active, with effort, mindfulness, and concentration, the passive and active are in balance. What I like, just as a metaphor, I don't think we need to take it too literally, but it, I think it's useful, at least for me. Ajahn Sumedho talks about these three parts of the Eightfold Path. So the Eightfold Path can be divided into three sections. And again, the Eightfold Path is what we wake up to when there's uh, when the heart is unencumbered by the force of greed, the force of aversion. So when either completely or relatively, the heart is relatively free of the force of aversion, the force of greed, any kind of clinging or resistance. When it's relatively free, then we relatively, you know, to some degree, see a path, how to live. It just becomes clear to us. And so the Buddha just organized what becomes clear to us in three ways. And this path is something to be developed. So the three insights in the Fourth Noble Truth, as you people who have been coming to the talks know, for each of these Four Noble Truths, there are three insights we develop. So for the Fourth Noble Truth, the three insights are, there is a path, it should be developed, it has been developed. So with that initial clarity, we have a sense where there actually is a path. There's a way to live that really supports this freedom, the experience of freedom, and the wisdom and the compassion that arise out of this freedom. There is a way, just like there's a wrong way to live, you know, a way that wouldn't lead that direction. That means there's a way that leads in that direction. And then the deeper insight is this path should be developed. I should actually devote my life to developing this. And then the final insight that a person 
would say when they've completely developed the path, they'd have the insight, this path has been completely developed. And as it said in the suttas, you know, uh, the work has been done. There's there's a realization that everything that needs to be understood or abandoned has been understood or abandoned. But I don't know anybody who's there. But it, it makes sense intellectually that if we continue working with the path, maybe someday this mind, this heart, will we'll have that understanding, that insight. This path has been developed. But right now what we're hoping for is not to be confused by suffering, but to understand it. That's the first noble truth. And in understanding the experience of stress, we get to see that the cause is right here in our heart. Not out there where we tend to blame, but the pain, the hurt is here, and the cause for it is here. And we we become willing to stay with it because we care about ourselves and we want to be free of this pain, this hurt. And in really understanding the cause, it is abandoned. The cause is abandoned by understanding suffering, the experience of suffering intimately, not the story, but the direct moment-to-moment experience of being hurt or weighed down or entangled. Understanding that experience leads to release to the third noble truth, which is an experience of cessation, the heart free of entanglements, at least to some degree. And that experience of cessation, when it's fully realized, there's a great uh, clarity with that moment or those moments, then this fourth noble truth. And the way it's organized in the division of three, wisdom, Sila, which is living in harmony, and Samadhi, which is the quieting or tranquilizing of the mind, the stillness of the mind. So this is what we understand uh, in that third insight. We understand, oh, there is a path. This path is about developing right view, about living in harmony with right view, living in the world with right view and developing this mind, the stillness or the clarity of the mind, the mind that can actually see how it is. And then, of course, that clarity of mind, samadhi, really supports more insight. So that deepens wisdom or understanding. And the more understanding, then naturally the intentions flowing out of understanding will be the opposite of self-centered intentions. So that will naturally lead to living in harmony. And the more harmony there is in our life, the easier it is for the mind to be quiet and clear. So the deeper the stillness of the mind, the samadhi, then deeper insight. Deeper insight, more harmony. More harmony, more stillness, more clarity. More clarity, more insight. So just like there's a cycle that leads to more and more suffering and delusion, there's also a cycle, a positive feedback loop, that leads to freedom. And it's really developing and integrating these three things, wisdom, harmony, and samadhi, or clarity of the mind, stillness of the mind. We want to develop the three of them. They they need to work together. And Ajahn Sumedho has this nice way of just holding it. And again, it's just a, a metaphor. But he talks about wisdom as being the head, sila being the body, uh, ethical conduct or harmony being the body, 
and uh, uh, samadhi being the heart. So with understanding, it's really like the view. So this is more the intellect. Right view is more related to the intellect. And action that the, he assigns to the body, you know, are moving about in the world, are interactions, relationships in the world. And uh, samadhi is about balancing the emotional energy. So replacing emotions that are agitating, like competition or fear or wanting, craving, Replacing them with emotions that are stabilizing and calming, like kindness and compassion and equanimity and joy, happiness. These kinds of emotions really quiet the heart down. Because when we have pleasant emotions, wholesome emotions, contentment arises. right? And when there's contentment, then the mind isn't it isn't trying to do anything. So there's no agitation that is related to the mind trying to get something or get rid of something. So there's that stillness, that peace, that unification. It's like the mind just begins to settle here in the moment in the experience of metta, loving kindness, or in the experience of peacefulness, or in the experience of joy. It just settles, quiets, like a still pool that easily, effortlessly reflects what's going on around it or a mirror. And that's a, a nice metaphor for samadhi. There's a stillness in the mind, and the more still or quiet the mind is, or the heart, I guess I should use, because that's what he uses, the more quiet or unagitated the heart is, the more easily it is to see into the nature of things, how it is, how it is in a moment. And that leads to insight. What we see when the mind is still is right view, which is all things come and go and are conditional. Everything that can be known is known as something that comes and goes and is conditional or impersonal or not self. That's what we see with that clear, bright, reflective mind. And that that sort of develops right view. The confidence in right view, it just... Uh, it becomes a real force in the mind. So it's harder to forget it. Now initially, with the initial insights, we have, we get that view, but it's really easy to forget it because the force of our habit views just overwhelm it. But the more that view is seen through samadhi, deep with a clear mind, then the more that view gets established. And it's not easily shaken. And then the more it's established, the more those intentions are the common intentions in the mind, the intention of generosity and kindness, and on and on like this. There's this nice section in uh, another article by Ajahn Sumedho on the Four Noble Truths, and he's talking about right understanding and about how right understanding leads to right intention, how the right view leads to wholesome thoughts, wholesome intentions in the mind. And I think it's nice because it really explains how right view does lead to compassion. He says, the emphasis is on things are what they are. 
We are not trying to say that things are not anything at all or that they are not what they are. They are exactly what they are and nothing more. But when we're ignorant, when, we're, when we have not understood these truths, we tend to think things are more than what they are. We believe all kinds of things and we create all kinds of problems around the conditions that we experience. So much of human anguish and despair comes from the added extra that is born of ignorance in the moment. It is sad to realize how the misery and anguish and despair of humanity is based upon delusion. The despair is empty and meaningless. When you see this, you begin to feel infinite compassion for all beings. How can you hate anyone or bear grudges or condemn anyone who is caught in this bond of ignorance? Every, everyone is influenced to do things they do by their wrong views of things. And of course, it's for us, it's not just that we see this outside of ourselves, but we see this about ourselves. So we not only have compassion for you know, those people around us who are caught in greed or caught in aversion, but we have a lot of compassion and forgiveness for our own tendency to get caught in greed and aversion. And it really helps to tenderize the heart to understand how easy it is as human beings to get entangled in all kinds of suffering. And uh, this intention really helps us to take responsibility for our actions. It's like it develops even when, uh, you know, even when we're just in the beginning stages of practice, just seeing this, it really develops a sense of responsibility, like we really want to take care of our speech and our actions our livelihood so that we're not doing things that create suffering for those around us or for ourselves. And this is what Ajahn Sumedho says about that in terms of right speech, right action, right livelihood. We begin to realize that we have to be careful about what we do and say. Otherwise, we constantly hurt ourselves. If you do or say things that are unkind or cruel, there's always an immediate result. In the past, you might have been able to get away with lying by distracting yourself, going on to something else so that you didn't have to think about it. You could forget all about things for a while until eventually they came back upon you. But if we practice sila, living in harmony, things seem to come back right away. Even when I exaggerate, something in me says, you shouldn't exaggerate you should be more careful. I used to have the habit of exaggerating things. It's part of our culture. It seems perfectly normal. But when you are aware, the effect of even the slightest lie or gossip is immediate because you are completely open, vulnerable, and sensitive. So then you are careful about what you do. You realize that it's important to be responsible for what you do and say. And what gets our attention, you know, when we're, it's not so much we know this action is bad, but what we do know, if we're sensitive, is we know that the intention that led to the action is bad. Bad in the sense that the intention itself is a contraction, a squeeze on the heart. So this is how there, there is this basic um, wisdom that we develop 
through the process of developing more and more mindfulness or awareness in our lives. And we just talked about it in terms of understanding skillfulness and unskillfulness. Or what intentions, the quality of the intentions that lead to happiness and ease in the heart, and the quality of intentions that lead to stress or entanglements. And we just begin to understand the very first on a gross level and then on a more and more subtle level like whether a particular intention is wholesome or unwholesome and that's what we end up taking responsibility for not so much how our actions end up in the world because there are a lot of conditions in any moment so we may say something and it may cause a lot of uh, pain and but all we can really know is what was the intention. And sometimes we can't even know that, or there's just a lot of different intentions. And so we see the mixed intentions. Some were somewhat wholesome, some were not so wholesome. But this is really the place that we're learning to take responsibility. We want to understand our intentions. Because we all know people who do things that on the surface may look good, but the intention underneath, what, what they're really doing, is not wholesome at all. And sometimes people do things and a real mess seems to arise out of their action or their words. But that person's intention was really wholesome. And because of that, that person shouldn't, wouldn't be suffering from guilt or regret. Because if they reflect, they understand I did the best I could. I really wasn't trying to harm anybody. I was just trying to take care of myself or trying to take care of this person or whatever, trying to take care of things. And they turned, everything turned out to be a mess. But my intention was as good as it could have been. And that's, that's all we can count on. In uh, at one tradition of Buddhism, they have this phrase, everything rests on the tip of motivation or we could substitute the word intention. It's just recognizing that, being willing to develop that. we could spend a whole year talking about um, the Eightfold Path and those of you who have been around for a while know that last year all of the Sunday and Wednesday talks for the whole year or I think most of the year were on the Eightfold Path and uh, some of those talks are on the website you can download most of them should be down in the library too if you want more information and there's several good books on the Eightfold Path but ultimately, the Eightfold Path isn't something to read about or listen to. The Eightfold Path is something we realize um, intuitively. And then, and then when we look at something the Buddha said, it makes a lot of sense. But not because we're understanding what the Buddha said intellectually, but because it's illuminating something we know directly in our experience about the way to live that's, that's supportive of freedom, of wisdom and compassion. 
And that's the important thing, is just to engage the practice. This is a quote from Sarah, Sarah Dowering, one of the teachers at IMS. I think she's probably retired from teaching now. She's in her mid-80s. <clears throat> and she said in, in an article, to turn to the present and accept the unacceptable actually turns out to be a relief. If you've ever done this, you know what I mean. It means there is no need to struggle anymore. Our burden lifts that we hadn't even known we were carrying. Things are the way they are. We accept them because they are a fact. It is the only realistic thing to do, and so we move on with life. And so this is what we try to remember, that this is a possibility over and over every moment of our life we can either choose to react to the moment react by trying to get something good or push something away or we can respond to the moment with this impulse to contemplate oh this is how it is or to reflect oh this is how it is this moment this is how it is in terms of action this is how it is in terms of view this is how it is in terms of the heart, the agitation or absence of agitation in the heart. This is how it is. And we really let it in. And we begin to have a lot of confidence in the power of awareness to lead to all good things. So I'll just end, uh, Arjun Sumedho is summarizing the Four Noble Truths here at the end of his chapter in this book on page 24 and 25. I'll just read a little bit more before our discussion. He's talking about this balance. Samadhi is the balance of emotions. When you have good samadhi, love is free from selfish desire, free from lust and trying to get something from someone. With emotional balance, there's a kind of joy in love. You're not indifferent, but you have balance. You can love because there's nothing else to do. That's the natural relationship when there's no self. But when selfishness arises, then love becomes lust, compassion becomes patronizing, joy becomes selfish greed for happiness. When there's no self, joy is natural, compassion is a spontaneous arising of the mind. Pana is wisdom, knowing the truth, so that there is perfect harmony between the body the emotions, and the intellect. With wisdom, these three are all working together, helping each other as one, rather than as three conflicting forces. So sometimes people think that uh, Buddhism is a practice where we abandon the mind, the thinking mind. But actually, the, it, it's important, the intellect is important, but we want the intellect to be uh, normally our intellect is really about discriminative wisdom, like we're, we're looking out into the world and we're turning things into good and bad because it's in this worldly pursuit of getting the good and getting away from the bad. So we enlist the intellect, the thinking mind, to do this discrimination, to kind of constantly, always, do you notice this? We're always judging things, always splitting things into good and bad. And it's just how it is. And so we're taking that power of reflection and we're changing it with practice and it becomes more of a reflection this is the way it is so we're not 
we're not taking that extra step of good or bad, but just understanding that this is how it is. This is how it is. So we're taking the intellect to recognize this is how it is and to remember to reflect this is how it is. So I'll leave it here so that we have some time tonight. Next week we'll go on to the next chapter, which is on the three refuges. But uh, So any questions or comments from your own practice about the Four Noble Truths, what you've been seeing in your practice? Greg. because I know in my own experience that it's in a situation like that, it's like uh, I'm afraid of their suffering. It's not that I just care about them suffering, but I'm afraid. I don't, I don't want them to suffer. And that's, that's attachment. So we can care about somebody, but their suffering is their suffering in a way. And this is really, I mean, this has to be really hard for parents because... Uh, of course, when the child is young, we feel completely responsible for their well-being. But at some point, you're not. You're not at all responsible for their well-being. So where is that point? You know, is it not until they're 40? So at some point, parents have to start understanding that this child's life is this child's life. And it doesn't need to get in the way of compassion, but that that quality of responsibility shifts. It's a different kind of responsibility. And what you might try to do is, is channel your sort of, um, en- the energy that arises seeing what's going on with your son to live an impeccable life, like to really turn your own life more and more toward practice so that you're not modeling un- you know, unwholesome living in any way. So at least your son has somebody who's modeling uh, somebody who can relate to the changing conditions of his life with equanimity, with wisdom, and with compassion, with forgiveness, all the qualities you'd probably wish for him to have. See if you can manifest them more in how you deal with your own conditions. So, for example, how you relate to him. That's a disturbing condition that's arising in your life. So what would be a wholesome way for a human being to relate to a disturbing 
condition arising in their life. So how do you practice acceptance in that in that situation in a skillful way? How do you practice unconditional love in that situation? I don't have the answer, but uh, the more you focus on your own skillfulness, it probably will help him. And you might just end up doing, saying things, doing things that are more useful for him. Good luck with it. The comments people have or questions. and what you said, Ryan. Uh, one question was, um, do you need to take the whole package of the Eightfold Path? And, and my sense is, I don't think you do, actually. I think that the point is just to dig in somewhere that does make sense to you. And the, the whole package will be revealed in digging in. As long as where we start is relatively wholesome. Like some people are interested in Buddhist practice. They're just interested interested in the meditation, calming the mind, quieting the mind. But inevitably, if you do that, you just become more sensitive. And in being more sensitive, you're, you're naturally going to start developing sila. You know? And you're naturally going to start having insights and your understanding will shift. Or some people just have a real intellectual uh, interest in the Buddhist practice. You know, They just do a lot of reading and a lot of reflection don't really sit, don't really work systematically to quiet the mind or to develop um, kindness in their life or non-harming in their lives. Um, but I think that also can lead to the whole package. So so that's one thing I heard you asking. I think it is okay just to, to dive in where you feel comfortable or interested. And the other thing I, I, I heard you asking was about, you know, is there only one way? Well, I do think there's only one way. But I think that way, uh, the way people talk about that one way, or the way that different cultures or different individuals, you know, might describe the path, can be quite different. But I, I personally believe that the way this heart gets free 
is through a deepening understanding of the way it is. And But, you know, somebody else could say the way to freedom is through completely accepting Jesus. But that doesn't mean they, their experience is different than what I'm talking about. It just means they worry the way they're talking about it is different. You know, we'd have to spend a long time sort of comparing experiences to see whether we're talking about the same thing or not. A lot of people talk about the path and don't understand it at all, regardless of the tradition that they're practicing in. But for individuals who, who are freeing up their hearts, the path is the same. And the Buddha said this too. He said there's only one path, but the path, there's a, I remember one of the first retreat sites I went to in the uh, mid-80s, I think it was, and on the barn, this is out in Northern California, on the barn painted these big kind of colorful letters, um, paths are many, truth is one. And uh, it's an old Hindu, uh, something from the, I forget what collection of teachings, but ancient um, Hindu teachings. Uh, paths are many, truth is one. So that's how I would answer that other question I, I thought I heard you asking. Well, because I always found it interesting because, I mean, I, I think what, what I've grabbed into the Buddhist is that it's not as much maybe like, you know, you either, you don't have, it's that whole, not that whole back, because there's a lot of other traditions or something else, it's just like right or wrong. And sometimes, you know, I try to kind of clarify, because sometimes you read it and you start kind of thinking, well, if you're not doing this, that, you know, you look, it's really, it's so confusing, because I, I see when I, you know, talk to other Buddhists and stuff, that it's like, you know, well, so there's some that practice this you know, precept or, you know, or, that's why I just kind of want to clarify there wasn't anything that set in stone. Yeah, I think the key is to start developing something you have some confidence in and just see where it leads you. And, and keep an open mind about what the path is and isn't. I mean, one thing I found in my own practice history is that my understanding of what the path is and isn't has changed radically many times. And, of course, every time before it changes, I think I know what the path is. And then... I realized I didn't. I mean, and it's not like the new understanding somehow negates the past understanding, but it's really a different understanding of what the path is about. So I, I think uh, I think the key is just to get started. You know, something that seems trustworthy. Other thoughts, Tony? Thanks for sharing that. <coughs> yeah, and it's true in Buddhist practice too. You know, you can read some of the things, and initially they can seem really disturbing. And I think it's really important to take responsibility to reflect on the teachings and see how they might be real for us. 
And if they're not, like uh, Ryan was saying, just put it on the shelf. That maybe we don't have the way to sort of understand how this teaching might be useful. Like I hadn't heard that before, but that really, to me, that that sounds good. You know, like I could I could work with that. that <laughs> in a way that would really inform like how I could. Uh, uh, live my own life, you know, like it would be a teaching that would actually affect how I would live my life instead of something I'd have to believe in. And that's true in Buddhism as it is in other uh, traditions, you know, where there is a tendency to feel like you're either in or you're out. You've got to believe this or do this or you're not a good Buddhist or not a good meditator or something like that. Just a couple minutes left if anybody else has a comment or question. about the discriminative mind versus the mind that sees things as they really are, as, as, yeah, as they really are. Um, I was thinking about just how um, how do we make decisions about things without some of that discriminative mind coming in. I'm thinking about myself, my own life, like I'm at a point of discerning about a, a, a relationship that, I'm, that I've been in for a while. And it's just, you know, I, I get the idea of of um, being in that non-judging space and seeing things as they are, but just how, how does a person make choices from that framework? Yeah. Well, one of the things that arises in that just seeing things as they are is we, we will observe, we'll feel directly this great force of, you know, of emotional or mental, even physical energy to kind of do something. Something needs to be done. Something needs to be said. So part of that, that receptivity is letting this personality do the best it can given the wisdom that it has, given the understanding that it has. And that means sometimes this personality is going to do things that aren't so skillful, but we'll see it. We'll receive it. Oh, unskillfulness is like this. And sometimes that personality will act out skillfully, and we'll see that. Oh, you know, skillfulness is like this. So there's always this confusion that comes up about uh, Buddhist practice being uh, the same as passivity, but it's not passivity because we're not... uh, choosing one over the other. We're simply understanding this is how it is. But we're, in a way, we're freeing up the personality to arise. And as it's arising, if the insight, if the clarity is really deep, we might see that it's unskillful, and then we might abandon it before we act it out. Or if we see something wholesome arising from wholesome intentions, we might see it as it's arising, and we see it's wholesome, and we let it come into fruition. We really kind of give it freedom to sort of move into words and action and thought. But we're not, the the practice isn't actively repressing behavior. It's just understanding the forces that are there in the moment. And And the repression or the restraint comes naturally. We don't need to restrain unwholesome behavior. If you really see something as unwholesome, the forces to restrain it will arise in the scene of it. You just watch. You know, uh, but we always imagine that we're doing it. But that's something we project later, moments, you know, split second later. We, we project the idea that I'm restraining myself, and it's a real burden to have to do that. But as, if we really look, 
the more we see something as unwholesome, the more the letting go or the restraint arises. And the more we see something that's wholesome, the more we basically get out of the way and give it permission. But it takes a long time to trust that. I think that's really your question. It's about you know how to do how to make choices, and it's like learning to trust being intimate with your confusion about your relationship or with the different forces that are there with your relationship. Just being really there with them and just uh, let things percolate and move and shift and just have a, a kind of sense of forgiveness and humor as you see what you do about it. <laughs> We're not just uh, trapped in this body, but in a sense, you know, we're trapped in this personality, in this culture, and you know, we're kind of here, and uh, and it's really uh, a deep insight to be willing to have the personality that we have, and to have the situation that we have. It's a real act of kindness to ourselves and to the world to kind of own our experience, our existence, as it is, as imperfect as it is. So next week, the three refuges. Thanks, everyone. Let's just take a few seconds to let go of the words, take a breath or two together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.